Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. British politics, or specifically the Conservative Party, I'm trying to work out if it's a genre of film. I think at the moment it'd be kind of like an apocalyptic film, like 20 Days Later, set to a Benny Hill sketch. Because it is, in one sense, look, you'd have to have a heart stone. Conservative Party in power for 12 years caused immense, incalculable damage to the social fabric of the country, and it's finally come crashing down. The problem is there's quite a lot of collateral damage. And by collateral damage, I mean you, uh, because obviously the British people have to pay the price. Now, just before I came on air, I just read read a tweet. Which, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like, I just I had to compose myself. I had to, I had to take a long, deep breath, have a lot of water. This is from Isabel Oakshot, who's a well-connected right-wing uh, political commentator, who wrote, depressed Liz Truss has changed her mobile number so many times that as of today, some cabinet ministers can no longer contact her, <laughs> I'm told. That's funny. I mean, that's funny. Clearly, that is that is funny. I saw this, people, already the commentary, I've seen the hot takes coming of, well, is she being bullied? She's the prime minister. <laughs> can, we not, can we not talk about the theoretically most pop, uh, popular, not popular, sorry, most powerful, theoretically as well, person in the country being bullied. Because um, I think we can all agree there's something of punching up about a prime minister who imposes a catastrophic budget, which is going to have terrible consequences for millions of people who I think should we should feel sorry for rather than the prime minister who's responsible for it. So again, just to recap, if you've just woken up from a coma, um, Liz Truss has plunged the country into turmoil after she imposed a budget, which she has no electoral mandate for, which sought to tax, cut taxes on big business and the rich, uh, which then caused a run on the pound, a run on government bonds, emergency action by the Bank of England to stop pension funds collapsing. Um, the pound, obviously, have I already covered that? Um, and I did cover that. Um, and then, obviously, huge talk of cuts to public spending in order to deal with the crisis that she'd caused, though she denied there'd be spending cuts. Now, that budget, it would be, it's just, it's very important to remind ourselves, was truly celebrated and cheered on by, for example, the Daily Mail, which unfortunately is the most read newspaper in the country. Obviously, the vast majority of people don't read the Daily Mail, but just in terms of circulation, it's at the top. At last, a true Tory budget, they cheered on, because the view of much of the British right is 12 years of Conservative rule, that there hadn't been a proper Tory economic policy, despite the rolling back of the state under George Osborne's ideologically driven austerity. That wasn't good enough. Finally, they had the chance to do what Tim Montgomery, the Conservative commentator, said was to turn Britain into a laboratory for the right-wing economic ideas of think tanks such as the Institute for Economic um, Affairs. So they they did cheer this on, whether people obviously now seek to pretend um, otherwise. So now Jeremy Hunt is... Clearly now, as you probably noticed, uh, Jeremy Hunt is, according to the Sunday Times, he's taken full control as plotters circle 
wounded PM. So there's a lot of talk now about Jeremy Hunt being the de facto prime minister because Liz Truss, who's literally changed her mobile phone number to stop her cabinet colleagues getting in touch with her, um, is so fatally wounded, um, as the mirror succinctly puts it, government imploding, time's up. She has no political authority whatsoever. You see, as others have pointed out, <clears throat> she was a very bad front person for the economic policy she believed in because she's a monstrously terrible uh, communicator. I mean, she's it's, it's obviously farcical, her attempts. I mean, look, just here's, here's a little clip from a press conference. Um... Various takes on that. People suggesting that's then at two in the morning in a kebab shop when they're at the front of the queue and they can't work out what to order. Anyway, there's been lots of very funny commentary on a press conference which she called. It was very short and then she didn't take questions and she just walked off. Uh, she was a very bad front. <laughs> she was a very bad front person for economic policies she actually believed in, but which were obviously things like cutting corporation tax and so on and so forth. But now she's got to front economic policies of Rishi Sunak, who was the other guy, obviously, who stood against her in the Tory leadership race, and she she beat. Uh, so now she's got to she's got to she's got to impose the sorts of policies that uh, she wanted. There's been lots, by the way. Tory briefing. They really are going for each other. Um, according to the Sunday Times, last night a number 10 source denied that Javid, Sajid Javid, had ever been considered for the role now filled by Hunt. There were suggestions he was the first choice, but turned it down. The Prime Minister laughed out loud at the suggestion, they said. She sat at the cabinet with Javid for 10 years and she knows who is good and who is shit. I'm not sure Liz Truss is in a very good position to judge how shit a politician is, frankly, or otherwise. Um, hmm. Um, so let's just return back to Jeremy Hunt. So Jeremy Hunt um, is somebody actually who supported slashing corporation tax in the his abortive leadership uh, campaign down to 15%. That's lower than what Liz Truss um, and her now departed uh, chancellor proposed. Uh, they wanted to keep it 19, um, but now obviously um, it's going up to 25. But at the same time, Jeremy Hunt is a true believer in austerity. Now, during the, he said this about David Cameron, David Cameron's a genius for getting public to accept austerity. Uh, he said, by persuading the country to accept public spending cuts without triggering violent protests. Now, let's just have a little listen to what Jeremy Hunt has said um, since he essentially took over the government of this country. The country are going to judge us in the next election far more by what happens over the next 18 months than what's happened over the last 18 days. And we want to put this right. Uh, but we also want to level with people that in a very, very challenging international situation, uh, post-pandemic, cost of living crisis, Ukraine, uh, we're going to have to make difficult decisions on spending. It's not going to rise by as much as we would have liked. And we're going to have to ask all government departments for, for even more efficiencies. And by the same merit, we're not going to be able to cut taxes as quickly as we wanted to, and some taxes will have to go up. That is a very difficult message, but I think we have to be honest with people that if we want to keep the rises in interest rates as low as possible, then we have to give certainty to the markets that we really can fund every penny of our plans. One way uh, a government can uh, give certainty to individuals and markets is by sticking to what they say they're going to do. And that includes the Prime Minister. So Liz Truss uh, told us very recently, we will not be cutting public spending. 
Is that true now as it was when she said it? We don't want to cut public spending. I'm going to ask you that question very carefully again. Yeah, you've asked Liz Truss said you've asked me, I heard you very we will not be cutting public spending. So is that true? Will you let me answer the question, Charlie? Please do. Thank you. I'm not going to make any commitments uh, less than 24 hours after becoming Chancellor on any individual element of spending or tax. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're, they're introducing austerity again. So cuts on top of the cuts they've already imposed for the last twelve years. If Liz Truss's economic policies were a departure from the twenty nineteen Tory manifesto, so is that because obviously they ran essentially on not whatever they essentially baked in cuts they'd already done. They didn't run on imposing slash and burn cuts again to public services, and neither would they have won an eighty seat majority if they'd done so. Jeremy Hunt, I saw some centrist commentators going oh, very reassuring listening to his calm voice, his calm dulcet tones on the radio. After this terrible force, 10 storm, whatever, finally calm. And I really do think that sums up how for a lot of, I'm afraid, so-called centrists, politics is a vibe, not substance. Because Jeremy Hunt is an ideologically driven right-wing conservative who is committed to obviously rolling back the state. He That places him to the right economically of Boris Johnson. In the Liz Truss was also to the right of Boris Johnson in, in different ways, as we've seen. Um, that's not an improvement. Um, let's just, I think, listen to, just before I bring in our guests, maybe someone who more succinctly had a quite a succinct description of our new de facto Prime Minister, Jamie Hunt. When I saw him there, I just said, you've got a hell of a job, the best of luck. And what I really wanted to say, <laughs> fuck you. Oh, no, 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 bastard, you mustn't say you that. Know, but you can't say that. Yes, no, no you can't say that. You've got to, we'll have to have you out of the studio now. Yes, we'll have to have you out will, of the with, studio. with uh, many apologies. <laughs> the Nobody... time now is half past eight, a time for the sport. That was Miriam Margoyle on Radio 4's Today programme. Probably looking back at his catastrophic record as health secretary and all the calamities that inflicted on the NHS leaving us unprepared for a pandemic in which tens of thousands of people died avoidable deaths. Uh, before I bring in our guests, as ever, if you're watching live, press the YouTube link, press like and subscribe. You can support the show and all the documentaries we've done. I'll talk about the documentary later because it's been in the news. We've got a Tory councillor in a bit of a crisis because of our documentary, which I'll explain later. Um, that's that documentary and all the documentaries are made possible on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. We're not obviously funded by Tory donors. We're funded by you. That's what makes this all possible. And uh, you can use super chats, put questions to the guests, and I will thank everyone at the end. And also listen to us, obviously, on the podcast. Also later, we're speaking to Just Stop Oil, who did a direct action on a painting, which has caused a bit of a furore, including amongst people who are quite sympathetic, maybe to their aims. I've not heard a proper fair response from them. And what's the point of doing this whole thing if we don't offer a platform to people who otherwise wouldn't be heard fairly? So we're going to do that. Right. Let's bring in James Meadway, the brilliant economist and writer, and also George Eaton, senior editor at New Statesman, also brilliant. Both great. Lovely to see you both. How are you doing? Hi. Welcome. Good to see you too. James is actually in Dubai, so it's a bit hotter than here for work purposes. Um, and George has a great bookcase behind him full of books, which there used to be a Twitter account which used to zone in on people's books when they went on. Bookcase credibility. Lockdown feature, yeah. Because everyone was doing down-the-line interviews, so people looked at their books. All right, great to see you both. Where are we going to start? <laughs> a lot to begin with, frankly. What 
you both about? Okay, Jeremy Hunt. What do you think? What let, I want to hear what you're saying. Do you think Jeremy Hunt is essentially now the prime minister? And what do you think politically that signifies for this government? George, I want to start with you. Yes, uh, Liz Truss is now uh, a zombie prime minister who is the prisoner of her chancellor, mm-hmm. and her aim will, I think, be to simply make it to that uh, rather unfortunately timed uh, fiscal statement on Halloween, uh, in the hope that that will reassure uh, the markets and Conservative MPs that they have a plan. The early signs, though, are that uh, neither camp is buying this. And I think we are seeing a return to the austerity rhetoric of the Cameroon period, but in far more difficult uh, political conditions are far more difficult economic conditions. Um, it was possible for for David Cameron to, to retain um, power even after all the austerity, until obviously it, it, it blew up with Brexit. But he had the advantage of being able to um, blame uh, the Lib Dems in part. He could blame the last Labour government. Um, and people hadn't suffered at that point uh, a lost decade for living standards. I also think, and this is an important point, the the the, the Cameroon tactic was to try and offset austerity with ultra-low interest rates. In the Bank of England's uh, interest rate was 0.5% for most of the period. So uh, a lot of uh, Tory voters suddenly saw the cost of their mortgages plummet. Uh, people found it easier to uh, get mortgages because of how low rates were. They found it easier to borrow credit. Um, and this, you could almost call it kind of privatised Keynesianism. It's this idea that essentially private credit will support demand when the state can't. And that model is bust now. And I think Liz Truss is in some ways a sort of morbid symptom of a much bigger crisis, which is that we're in the the end of the era of uh, ultra low interest rates and cheap money. And uh, that's uh, that means it's far more far more difficult for, for the Conservatives to cling to power. James. I'd agree. I'd agree with that. I mean, the other one to throw in, of course, is is that, look, they have to find, um, given that they've just knocked off £18 billion from the um, corporation tax uh, cuts that was going to go through, that isn't anymore, they need to find about £40 billion if they want to meet their own targets for reducing the size of government debt relative to the size of the economy by the end of, of Parliament. I mean, there is an option, by the way, to just change that. I mean, this is just a rule that they have. They don't have to stick to this. That might, of course, just panic uh, the financial markets all over again, but it's an option if you were looking for more space on this. Um, Jeremy Hunt hasn't ruled out, in addition to austerity, hasn't ruled out reversing on uh, the income tax and perhaps uh, not cutting income tax when they said they would, or this trust said they would next year, perhaps changing the national insurance contribution. These are both options. Uh, at that point, you're still looking at a huge amount of austerity. Um, plus, you're turning around to, what, 25 million taxpayers and saying, sorry, the money you were going to get, you're not anymore, and by the way, your mortgage is gone up. So so this is this is just a complete like political disaster uh, in terms of what they're trying to do. I don't think they're going to be able to get away with it in the way that George Osborne, exactly as George uh, says, was able to get away with this, that you've got people to blame. You can say we're all in this together. You can invent various stories about why it's necessary. There's also just like we've cut so much that stuff really isn't working by this point. You can't, I mean, the obvious one to go for is capital spending. 
uh, in other words, investment in infrastructure, in roads, in public transport, energy, all that sort of stuff. Osborne slashed that as soon as he got in because it's easy. You just do it straight away and people don't notice that they haven't built a new bridge. They might notice that the benefits have declined, but you don't notice that something hasn't been built. So you do it straight away. But then 10 years later, you find that nothing really works properly and productivity is low. So, so it's just these sort of rounds of slow, steady decline disaster that, that we're living through here with no obvious route out of this. I mean, the steady management of decline is probably the best Jeremy Hunt can hope for at this point in time. This isn't a, a happy prospect for anyone. Yeah, I mean, I saw like one comment on this up from The Columnist on Twitter. People are going to go absolutely bananas when the spending cuts are announced. Bear in mind, two big reasons for the scale of the cuts will be Brexit-related revenue costs and the interest rate rises of the last few weeks of chaos. I'm not at all sure how this is going to work. Yeah, I mean, just on that, James, I mean, what do you think? They, yeah, you said Catholic spending, because obviously they've got, if they were to ring fence, for example, the NHS, that's mm -hmm. a massive part of government. And well, the NHS and education, for example, because they're the two most unpopular departments you'd cut aren't they so if they try to do that then you just end up with devastating cuts elsewhere yeah, yeah and social care jeremy hunt is on the record as having said as health secretary it was a mistake to allow social care to be cut so so what's he going to do like okay so you have to protect that as well at which point you, you're you're like you know, getting rid of the justice department in in its entirety i don't know how many more police you can afford to get rid of uh there, there isn't like benefits are at rock bottom they can't politically afford to touch uh, pensions i mean it's going to be a brave tory prime minister uh, that takes that one on and by the way they shouldn't incidentally i mean don't want to get carried away with saying uh, just take out a pension it's Pensioners in Britain are still loads of them really badly off, and that's despite increasing um, the, uh, the basic uh, pension relative to other incomes over the last few years. So you're going to lean, I would have thought, very heavily on public sector workers and hope you can get away with it. But um, that was kind of baked in already. It, it looks bad. None of this looks good, and there are very, very few options left now. If the government was serious about doing something, they might say, well, actually, we could. Uh, you know, there's a lot of wealthy people in Britain. It's a weak economy with a lot of wealthy people, a lot of wealthy institutions. Go and tax them. But it's a Tory. So, you know, that's not going to happen. It's on the list of things to do. Talk more about the economics about of all of this shortly. I just want to hear, I mean, George, on his Isabel Oakshaw, he's become my oracle, obviously, political wisdom today. Uh, she says, here's what Rishi Sunak supporters are planning. Oust Liz Trust next week. Install their man in number 10. Keep Hunt as Chancellor, give Penny Mordaunt foreign, avoid general elections at all costs, tenable. So there's this talk of the Sunak Mordaunt plot because both of them together actually got a lot of, I think a majority of Tory MPs went for one of those two. Um, uh, yeah, and Mord yeah, I mean, Penny Mordaunt was seen as quite promising, but I think her leadership campaign was pretty disastrous actually in the end. Um, but there's also talk of Ben Wallace, um, who's Defence Secretary, who, because of Ukraine, got a lot of, you know, plaudits across the Tory party and beyond amongst commentators, I suppose. What do you think? Do you think the problem is, George, that they know they need a coronation? So they hark back to Michael Howard, though they were in opposition at the time, mm. who was a kind of caretaker, steady the tills and then allow someone else to kind of pick up the pieces properly. Um, but they can't agree on who to take over because a lot of them have a real problem with Rishi Sunak. They see him as a, someone who stabbed Boris Johnson in the back and didn't like his economic policies, which is why they went to the extreme other end um, on, on, on taxes. What do you think, George? Yes, so there isn't uh, one outstanding candidate that they can unite around. So whoever it is, um, there will be uh, divisions. Uh, ben Wallace, as you say, is, is, is the dark horse. Had he stood the first time round, he perhaps could have won. Uh, so that's the big what if, yeah, personal reasons for not standing, uh, does he stand this time? That's the big what if. Um, Sunak, in some ways, would be the obvious choice in that he have, was more popular among Conservative MPs.
than trust. And I think that's one reason why you've seen trust's position deteriorate so quickly. She was never um, as popular among MPs as she was with the membership. Um, so I think this, but the, the, the fundamental problem is, is um, you're, you're, you're 12 years into a government. I think it's lost when you lose the confidence of uh, voters in this way. And the closest parallel we have is um, the period after Black Wednesday in 1992, uh, when Labour started to open similarly mammoth uh, polls, and that ended obviously in, in the 1997 landslide. It's very hard to win the confidence back. It's uh, there's some parallels with the with the markets. Is that it doesn't particularly matter at that point what specific policies you introduced. They've lost confidence in the overall government. Um, it's, and, and actually, the more concessions, more U-turns you make, the more you look increasingly desperate. Uh, James, economics guru. David Barata asks, with the increase in mortgage rates, how much of an increase in foreclosures do you think will happen? What will that do to the economy and the housing crisis? I suppose just in terms of economic policy in this, obviously, um, the Tories do depend on homeowners for their for, for a big part of their electoral coalition. And also the economic model of Britain is broken, is it? And that depends on property bubbles and all the rest of it. So, yeah, what do you think of that and the widening kind of point about the housing market there? Well, it's 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 the so it's one of the fundamental questions. You're absolutely right. The British economy doesn't really work very well. It's been it's been running on on fumes for for quite some time. It's been depending on things like the Bank of England uh, being able to run quantitative easing uh, to keep the show on the road at various points in the last decade or, or so. It's it's low productivity, low investment, low wage, high debt, big dependence on uh, imports from the rest of the world for essential things like food and uh, food and natural gas as we're all discovering uh, over the course of this year. So nothing really works too well. Um, but one of the things it is quite good at is bu building up property bubbles. And, and that's been exactly uh, a key part of the sort of the Conservatives' way of managing the economy and keeping themselves in power for a long period of time. Now, th there's a couple of a couple of things to note on this. One is that just how many people actually own their homes outright. So they're kind of insulated from what happens to interest rates now. In my head, the figure is about half of uh, Conservative voters in the last election are actually uh, outright um, property owners. They, they don't have a mortgage, which I find an incredible thing. I think it's something around that sort of number. So, so they're kind of insulated from what happens to interest rates. And then there's a, a large number of people who are on variable rate mortgages or just come to the end of their fixed period who are, who are going to get absolutely squeezed by this. And, and squeezed in a way that people with mortgages, variable rate mortgages really, haven't been squeezed since the early 1990s and Black Wednesday and that sort of thing. Um, interest rates then were much higher, but mortgages tended to be lower. What we've got now is interest rates are rising, but they're still lower than they were in the early 1990s. But everybody's houses are so expensive now. They're taking out these huge loans just to get on the property ladder. So people can get really, really squeezed and some fairly terrifying figures uh, from the Resolution Foundation about what that might do. Now, that's one part of it. That's quite likely to impact you to thought on how people spend money and whether they can go to the shops and afford things to buy. Coupled in with everybody else's wages not keeping up with inflation, you're looking at potentially quite a serious uh, recession uh, over the next year. I mean, the, the forecast from the IMF uh, and others point in this direction. So, so it, looks, it, it doesn't exactly look good. And this is really a big, just politically, big difference in Black Wednesday, that once the pound had crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism, and it devalued. This is in a world economy that's growing in the 1990s. Mm. We're now in a world economy that's not growing. It's all over the place. In the 1990s, 
the British economy grew on the back of all of this. The Tories had recovered their reputation. If you look at the polling, by 1997, people thought the Tories were better at running the economy than Labour. I mean, Blair still won, but that's what the polls were saying. That's not going to happen this time. There's nothing out there that says, oh, there's going to be a big recovery in the economy and the Tories will all be fine. It all looks really bad, and almost everything the Tories will do in line with how they usually behave is likely to make this worse for most people. Yeah, I mean, George, on that, James, is, you know, just the politics of it, Looking back to the 1997 election, what was the Tory slogan? It was Britain's booming, don't let Labour ruin it. And Britain was economically doing very well. Turned out to be an unsustainable financialised bubble, which drove, obviously, a lot of it that all came crashing down. But, I mean, it, you know, living standards were rising, growth was rising, and the Tories ended up ahead on economic credibility despite Black Wednesday about five years before that election. I mean, I suppose the issue now is the Tories, they, they can't blame the last... They can't blame the last Labour government. They can try, I mean, that's not going to wash anymore, is it? Um, everyone can see the electorate's made up his mind. The current market turmoil has been caused by what, what the government did. Um, and they, they, austerity is not popular anymore. They can't say, you know, man, they can't get, you know, kind of manufactured public opinion in that direction, talk about Greece and all the rest of it. People have suffered spending cuts. It is very difficult to see because the, the pain, the real pain is yet to come. And the election is only two years away, essentially. You can't, you're looking at it, it's, you, it's just very difficult to see, even now that, you know, look at the latest, we just look at the latest poll, the latest poll, well, YouGov, Labour on 53%, the Tories on 19%. Some might go, well, in 2019, the Tories went down to that. Yeah, but there was the Brexit party at the time. So obviously a lot of the right-wing voted on the Brexit. So actually, if you totted that up, you could see how the Tories would recover. I mean, it, it's, it's just difficult to see how they, they claw themselves back at all. It is. I think the interesting question to ask is, what does this mean in terms of the wider political dynamics on the right? Because obviously you had uh, UKIP as a, as a right wing uh, protest party for a period. And then that right vote largely coalesced around the Conservatives and, and uh, in the post-Brexit era, and then even more so around Boris Johnson. Um, how are those who cheered Truss on said that it was the, the greatest uh, budget ever? Uh, and that she'd finally broken with the Treasury orthodoxy. How are they going to respond to this? I wonder if they will essentially say um, she wasn't radical enough. Uh, she didn't. She should have uh, maybe done bigger tax cuts and coupled them with huge spending cuts from from the get go, and then everything would have been okay. That is the line that will emerge essentially. That uh, the problem isn't with the with the ideology itself, but but Truss's botched implementation of it. I think you will see some libertarians and free marketeers saying, well, if, if, if the Conservative Party, in their view, is reverting back to the failed orthodoxy of the last uh, decade, then they'll look elsewhere. I, I think you could see Farage, I noticed, has already U-turned himself. He, he originally said this was the best Tory budget since 1986. Do you want to look at this quickly? Shot, today was the best budget since 1986. Chaser. Remainer Jeremy Hunt is a new chance that Johnny Force will remain at the end. The Conservative Party has no authority, no decency, and has failed our country. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. Just fleshing that out. Yes, very well prepared. Um, I mean, that to me looks like a signal of uh, potentially a new right-wing party, new right-wing movement. You can see a narrative developing that Tory members have been betrayed by the um, by the Tory establishment. If, if trust is removed, they will say, and if it's another leader selected without a member's election, you can see a powerful narrative yeah. that develops among that right wing fringe um, of we need to we need to give up on this this failed party. 
Yeah, I mean, what, do you think the, the issue there, James, I mean, I'm just interested with kind of how a new right-wing party would work because it would have to be so different from what UKIP was. Because even though, look, we all know here Farage is an is a ultra-Thatcherite, uh, a rampant neoliberal who, for example, wanted to get rid of the NHS as a public, you know, publicly run uh, service uh, in favour of some sort of private insurance model or something. Um, the way UKIP postured was that it, was, it got, it won over a lot of, a significant number anyway of Labour voters. It didn't just win over Tory disillusioned Tories. It did win over disillusioned Labour voters, because what it did is it, it it allowed people to see what they wanted to see. So when they were in the north, they weren't talking about that, you know about being Thatcherite all the rest of it. They, so they won over Labour voters who were left on the economy but right on cultural issues. Yeah. I just wonder what would a new right wing party because I think he is going to give it a go. I mean, he's a shapeshifter. At the beginning of the pandemic, he was denouncing the Tories for not locking down quick enough, and then pivoted to an anti-lockdown message instead. But I'm just wondering, what do you think? I mean, do you, think, do you see, you know, just in terms of the econ an economic platform, the problem is right wing libertarianism is just not very popular in this country, is it? That's the issue. No, not not at all. I mean, the actual support uh, out there for the kind of, you know, sh shrink the state and, and cut everyone's taxes position is, is really tiny and has been for, for a long period of time. Uh, you know, understandably, to be absolutely honest, if you look at uh, the state of everything. Now, the space out there is basically a sort of Johnsonism with, with, with knobs on. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, you can see it developing, some of the criticism that's coming through from the right, not entirely without foundation, where it's like, oh, well, it's the Bank of England's fault we're in this mess. It was them who decided to basically uh, set up a situation where they were going to withdraw support uh, from pension funds on the Monday. It was their fault that inflation's risen because they didn't move fast in, uh, in, the, in last year when they should have driven up interest rates. Um, it's also, I saw in the Daily Mail, it's Gordon Brown's fault for uh, changing the rules and how pension funds operate, which meant they all go into liability-driven investments and all these sort of complicated derivatives and things. Not entirely true, that one, but the problem goes back further, if anything. But you can you can assemble a story which is really like a populist, we're going to make the Bank of England print money for us, that way we can cut taxes and run the NHS, and that's where it lands. And actually, if the Tory party does crown another leader because they don't dare go to the members, um, that's probably the space where Farage should get into. There'll be a lot of disgrace. Conservative Party members there, not unreasonably, frankly. I mean, we don't live in a very democratic country. Uh, the various calls that basically party members shouldn't be allowed to pick who leads their party, I think, is, is kind of disturbing as a response to this failure of democracy we had. You get a bunch of people saying, oh, well, Labour members choose Jeremy Corbyn, they shouldn't be allowed to vote. Tory members choose Liz Trust, they shouldn't be allowed to vote. That's the space that Farage could get into. And I can see him positioning himself as a sort of populist, right wing, print the money and pay for the NHS, cut the taxes for the rich sort of position. Just, someone just pointed out, FSM is a dog. Tory Graf admits Project Fear was right. This is Jeremy Warner, I think, in the Telegraph. He's written a piece about how the warnings of what would happen in terms of Brexit and the form of Brexit. The Tories certainly pursued um, have been more than vindicated, he actually said. Um, just on the uh, Tad Campbell ask about a caretaker being challenged to avoid a coronation. I mean, that's the, isn't that the issue? I've already asked that, I suppose, but it's the paralysis, isn't it? That they can't, if they have another leadership election, <laughs> it's just looks ridiculous, doesn't it? But I suppose the other point is, that, in fact, that I want to ask you about this general election issue. Mm -hmm. um, let's just see what happened in the House of Commons when Liz Truss was asked about a general election. I'm not sure how you measure a good honeymoon, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> but after five weeks of a crisis conceived in Downing Street, of crashing pensions, interest rates rising, mortgage market turmoil, and complete financial chaos, the country has been left wanting divorce. 
In two recent polls, 60% of this country wants an immediate general election. The Prime Minister claims she's in listening mode. Will she give way to the public? Mr Speaker, I think the last thing we need is a general election. Right, I mean, the last thing the Conservatives want is a general election because they will be absolutely blown to smithereens in the current context. But, George, I'm just wondering, you know, um, Nadine Dorries um, pointed out in leaked WhatsApp messages uh, that it would... Well, she said it publicly anyway. Uh, that it, it, it would just look... They can't just keep changing prime ministers in, in, in government and then not call a general election. Because Labour, you could say, well, Labour did it under Blair and Brown. Yeah, that was one. I mean, you can't just keep two, three prime ministers in one parliamentary term. So the Sunday Times has called for Rishi Sunak to take over and then when things stabilise, call a general election, call a general election. But what do you think, George? Do you think they could get away with that? Or do you think they would, the pressure would be too big if they replace Liz Truss? And that's actually maybe what's keep it, going to keep her in power. I think Truss will be gone before Christmas. Um, I... I mean, the constitutional position is obviously that the, the, the latest the general election can be held is January 2025. Now, Labour could bring forward a vote of no confidence. I think that becomes more likely if Trust tries to cling to power. There are some Conservatives who might join them. You did see some of this before the 1997 election. Some Conservatives almost openly saying, we need a spell in opposition now. Um, but the problem is at the moment, uh, there's almost no such thing as a safe Conservative seat. Uh, so it would be so truly masochistic for the Conservatives to vote for a general election. Then at what point would a, would a prime minister be forced to, uh, to call on? Then the usual factors, I suppose, would apply. Um, public protest could become a factor, um, for instance. But the, the, the sad reality is we could be stuck with a, with a zombie government for some time. I mean, in terms of what they could do, James, just in terms of the economics of that, because yeah. normally what the Tories try to do is kind of front load and popular things at the beginning of a parliamentary term and then try and like do a sugar rush boom or top cut taxes in a populist way before an election. But it is the problem now they, they well, they've only got two years, isn't they? they don't have a full parliamentary term, they've got two years. Um, so is there is there very much they could do, or do you think they could do before an election to try and Claw, even if it doesn't work, but what could they do to try and claw back support? Not if we're now on to sensible Rishi Sunak, uh, Jeremy Hunt sort of mode of doing this. By the way, I do this. There's a sort of rewriting history going on here. Uh, and I do sometimes get a bit like, oh, austerity was driven through by these crazed ideologues. No, no, no. It was the sensible people. They all lined up at the time in 2010 onwards. It's Paul Johnson. It's Tom Scollard, recently departed from the Treasury. It's all these nice, sensible people who said, we must nice and sensibly absolutely slash uh, public services. And it was a complete disaster. And it's my major part of the reason we're in such a mess now. So I don't give much credence to sensible and also this sort of rewriting where, where Jeremy Hunt becomes the, the nice, well-spoken person who's going to sensibly absolutely destroy whatever's left of public services. But if you accept that framework and if they accept the idea that debt has to be falling at the end of this parliament, and that apparently is what they want to cling to, their room for manoeuvre is basically zero at this point. There's very little they can do. Almost certainly what they'll do is just, just destroy capital spending because nobody will notice it for like a few years. So you just get rid of that and then you try and find some likely uh, targets elsewhere amongst uh, you know so-called efficiency savings, but there aren't any left. Everything's cut to the bone. So there's nothing there. There's no space whatsoever short of some miraculous recovery basically in the world economy 
economy that Britain can tag along with um, by, you know, 20, when's the election? 2024, 2025. None of this seems very plausible. If they start to think outside the box, if they end Bank of England independence, say, you know, we'll just run the printing press for a bit and see what happens. I mean, it's worth a try, I suppose, but I can't, I can't see it because we're now back into sensible management mode. So the parameters are very, very, very tight and there's nothing that they can do that they can conjure up by 2024, 25, short of fingers crossed that the growth miracle somehow happens. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just finally, I just want to talk about Labour, because Labour are now likely, <clears throat> very likely to win the next election and probably by quite a big stonking majority, unless things drastically change. The Tories have, I mean, no, no governing party in British history has self-immolated in such a... I mean, I think it really is just worth pointing out they really did do this to themselves. No, It all sort of their own Patterson, if people just rewind back to that. Nobody forced the Tories to try and cover, to change the law uh, to get Owen Patterson off the hook. Do you remember those corruption uh, allegations against Owen Patterson? No one forced them uh, to illicitly party during the pandemic. Nobody forced them to lie about illicitly partying during the pandemic. Nobody forced them uh, to cover up for a sex pest whip, which was the proximate cause of course of Boris Johnson's eventual final downfall. Nobody forced them to fail to deal in any meaningful way with the cost of living crisis. Nobody forced them. Uh, to impose Liz Truss as Prime Minister, and nobody forced them to introduce a load of completely unhinged economic ideas that crashed the economy and caused huge turmoil, and which millions of people pay the price for. They really did do this to themselves. But anyway, Labour now, they're going to win the next election almost certainly because of it. George, I mean, what do you think? You know, do you think now, I mean, because obviously Starmer departed from his leadership pledges, some would say his conference speech was an improvement of what that was. It's, you know, not as... You know, is it is it is it the same as New Labour? You know, I suppose some might say, well, actually, it, it's to the left. Talking about council housing, public ownership of rail, we'll see that kind of thing. But nonetheless, they've obviously really gone for the left, and a lot of the pledges that Keir Starmer made. But the difference is, New Labour came to power in a period of social peace bought by a, a uh, financialized bubble, which then detonated later on down the road. So living standards are rising. Uh, Britain's economy was doing well, as the Tories correctly noted in 1997, unsustainably, but nonetheless. Um, th so they could do a lot of things, which, you know, they did increase public spending after two years of keeping to Tory spending limits. This time will just be so much a Britain in, in, in a complete and utter mess. 
And the expectations will be raised amongst the huge number of the people who vote for the Labour Party that they'll do something to, to, to deal with the huge crises, the social crises. And if they're not actually doing radical or transformative enough stuff, then you will see a, a lot of those expectations being dashed. And then I don't, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, the big rupture with New Labour with the left originally was over the, it was over foreign policy. It was the Iraq war. And you've got a mass movement of 2 million people on the streets. But this would be over domestic policy. I mean, what do you think, George? What, where do you think Labour likely to position themselves, given what's going to happen? I think they have to be very careful not to talk themselves into a form of austerity. Um, because there, this narrative will emerge that uh, there's no money left. And that was the narrative after the um, 2010 uh, general election. And I think Labour will come to power uh, after over a decade in, in opposition uh, with a, a huge amount to do. And I think there will be huge public expectations on it. And actually, the dangerous option would be to be overly conservative and austere because history shows that Labour governments tend to fail when they uh, essentially default to to austerity. Uh, you think of uh, Ramsay MacDonald as uh, perhaps the most obvious example there. Uh, Labour has to be, of course, it has to be credible, but it also has to be radical. And the risk is that the obsession with so-called credibility, uh, which is more, more complex than perhaps some uh, eco economists suggest, uh, ends up crowding out the space for, for radicalism. What do you think, James? I mean, this is this is a very, very unpleasant place for, for Labour to end up winning an election in, right? And Blair had everything on a plate, a growing economy, uh, global stability, the option to do essentially whatever you wanted for, for a long period of time. The Tories nowhere to be seen because the massive majority, the, the kind of criminal waste uh, of that period in his first term is is something that, that haunts us all now, I suppose. Labour, if it gets into government this time, and you have to assume it will do, it just isn't going to look like that. The world economy is not going to be in a good place by that point. There'll be all sorts of other uh, geopolitical instabilities. Climate change is actually starting to bite in a serious way. Reports this morning that next year's harvest in Britain is going to be walloped by uh, drought and fertiliser shortages this year and forecasts for similar things into the future. Everything looks constrained. And that's the point where like this issue of credibility isn't any longer, I think, uh, it was never really just a sort of electoral thing you say to make people think that you're doing the right thing. It was always like, how do you protect, uh, in the case of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, how do you protect quite a, a programme for serious changes to the economy from the battering you get from outside? Labour has that with knobs on now because what was a very low interest rate environment in 2017, even 2019, is, is just gone. The huge external deficit we're running, where we have to buy natural gas and food and all sorts of other things from abroad, that's become a very, very apparent problem. So the room for manoeuvre is tiny. And if Labour isn't prepared at that point to say, OK, the only option you got left is actually quite serious redistribution, you have to, you have to go and find wealthy people, wealthy institutions, take money off them and spend it on public services. There aren't any other choices here. There is no other room for manoeuvre. You won't get the growth. You can't borrow uh, in the scale that you wanted to. Unless they're prepared to do that, you're going to end up with, uh, frankly, a bitterly disappointing uh, Labour government in the future. Now, that means they have to say now where those taxes are going to slant yeah. rather than yeah, ending up in some mess when it comes to the election or even worse, some mess uh, once they're actually in government. And I don't yet see the desire from this Labour leadership to actually be a bit clearer about how they're going to pay for these things and what exactly their priorities are. Well, that certainly leaves us with a lot to think about. Um, we've talked about, obviously, the Tory calamity, but I think it's important to talk about 
where things go from here. We've still got two years likely left, unless the pressure for general election is completely overwhelming under whoever Liz Truss's likely successor is. And I think George is right. She's she's out by Christmas. I think the paralysis is just um, how the, the consensus is she's got to go amongst all MPs. It's just how they get there without causing more damage is the issue. Both been absolutely brilliant as per usual. Really appreciate having your eternal wisdom on the show as ever. Um, so thank you both very much. Really enjoyed that as ever. Thank, thank you. you. Speak soon. Take care. Speak soon. Brilliant stuff as ever from both of them. Um, so we're going to speak to Just Speak. Uh, just Speak. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Um, we're, we're speaking to, uh, in fact, let me bring Emma in now. Emma. Hello. Emma. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can you hear going? you. Can you hear me okay? can hear you very well. Um, so what I'm just, I'm just going to run quickly a clip. The clip, which I think lots of people have seen, um, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation. One second. Let's go. of a painting or the protection of our planet and people. The cost of living crisis is part of the cost of oil crisis. Fuel is unaffordable to millions of cold, hungry families. They can't even afford to heat a tin of soup. Meanwhile, crops are failing. Millions of people are dying in monsoons, wildfires and severe drought. We cannot afford new oil and gas. It is going to take everything we know and love. So that's obviously the action by Just Stop Oil, which, of course, Emma here is a member of. Now, this caused a, a lot of controversy, including amongst, I suppose, people who've been naturally sympathetic. I should note the painting wasn't damaged. The painting was protected by glass. So basically the net impact was some pain on some glass. Let's be like, I mean, in terms of the, the lasting consequence if people are disturbed at the destruction of a painting, no painting, no painting was destroyed in the making of this protest, I suppose you could say. Um, but I think they've both been arrested for criminal damage or something. Um, I don't know what the criminal, da the criminal damage, is it to the floors or something because of the paint? I know, I don't know what it was. So Emma, I just want to ask, so firstly, a lot of people will go, well, just tell me firstly, what just just what's just stop oil's big aim? What's what what are you fighting for? Yeah, so we have one uh, really simple demand, which is that the UK government halts all new licenses and consents for fossil fuels in the UK. Um, that's something that the International Energy Agency, the UN, it's what our own their own climate change committee are recommended. Um, they've even been taken to the High Court and found guilty of not meeting their net zero commitments. Like it's completely incompatible with climate action. Um, and obviously, when we started this campaign, actually, it was 40 new oil and gas projects that were proposed. Um, now this autumn, it's been uh, it's 100, 100 new oil and gas projects. So as soon as we get a meaningful statement from the government, this disruption will stop. Um, but they're not listening to, to rationality, to common sense, to their own advisors, and no one is holding them to account. So that's why we've got young people taking this kind of action. 
So we've got one comment here, for example, which is supportive from Surd on STR. Those who are more upset about a potential damage of a painting than the actual damage to our planet were exposed without actually damaging the painting. It's very well done. Yeah, so I suppose sort of people, a lot of people I saw on social media were like, well, I'm never going to support their cause again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what, do you, what do you mean by that? You're not going to support a transition to a renewable, uh, an economy based on renewable energy. I mean, sort of like, what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna support the destruction of the planet now because I'm angry about a protest. <laughs> it just seems a bit, a bit like cutting your nose off to spite your face. That, but a lot of people who are sympathetic say, well, actually, this won't win public support. A lot of people who are naturally sympathetic to what you're arguing for will be alienated, and therefore will undermine the cause. What do you say to that? Um, well, I don't think that's true. I think this has sparked millions upon millions of conversations worldwide. Um, and I think if even a tenth of those conversations mention the new licenses for oil and gas, that's worth it. Because the fact of the matter is that if we didn't do this, it wasn't like this new story would have been naturally replaced by the one that suggests that our crops next year might completely fail due to climate change. This is not, you know, I think it's kind of indicative, really, to be honest, of the problem that we have in society. If, um, you know, I think we need to reach that point where it become, it's as shocking that our government are proposing more fossil fuels when we can literally see the effects right now in this country. We've seen 40 degree heat. I think it should be, we need to reach a point where that is as shocking as a bit of soup on some glass. That is what we need to be feeling because we have been blockading oil terminals. We have been, you know, blockading down in street. Um, and unfortunately, the attention economy is what it is. And I think there's also an effect called the radical flank effect. <laughs> Which means that you know you do, we don't need to be popular. Like we don't need to be popular. We need to grab attention and we need to put for, um, put pressure on the government, and we're doing that. I suppose the model there would be say Extinction Rebellion in 2019, which the poll said was very unpopular. But equally, what the same poll said in 2019 is that um, public. Um, worry about the environment as a political mm. issue went up and up and up in 2019. So Extinction Rebellion wasn't popular, but because they forced the discussion about the environment because of their direct action, that meant people were more likely to think the environment was an issue the government should do more about. Exactly. And we have so many people saying we support the, the cause, but not the means. So and that is people are saying, you know, of course, we shouldn't have any more drilling in the North Sea. But that wasn't the conversation a few months ago. You know, there was all this complete nonsense, to be honest, about energy security, because, uh, you know, um, what's more um, energy security than homegrown energy in the form of like wind and solar and renewables? Um, and obviously oil and gas takes upwards of 5, 10, 15, 20 years to come online. Um, so, you know, these kind of arguments are being proven to be bogus. Um, and we are getting people agreeing with the cause. Um, but I would also say to people, like, if you're really angry about this, then by all means protest in other ways. But I've seen, I've been at, at Downing Street several days and I've seen other groups standing by the side of the road with placards and we just get ignored. Can I ask just quickly, why, why, I mean, I get the cup of soup because the idea was people can't afford to heat uh, even mm -hmm. a cup of soup. This is a crisis affecting millions of people. Why, why a painting? Well, we, we did um, protests earlier in the year also targeting artworks. Artworks have huge amount of cultural, a huge amount of cultural value and significance. So it's really trying to tie the, the kind of outrage and anxiety we feel when something precious is being, um, is seen to be under threat and really trying to link that to people of like, why are we not upset about the fact that 
we're not going to have any sunflowers at this rate. We're not going to have any plants. We're not going to have any crops. We're not going to have any water. Like we need to try and tie that in, that outrage. And obviously artworks have been targeted in the past by many, many protest organizations from the suffragettes onwards, you know, um, because they are these um, points of like a, a value. And that's what we're trying to tie into. And, and we can see that it works. People are, it grabs people's attention. They're shocked and they're outraged. But I mean, I studied sculpture and environmental like myself, and I know that most artists are in favor of like social change and social good. And, um, you know, most artists have been quite radical figures in their time as well. So I think sometimes some of this um, outrage is misplaced because I know that Van Gogh, for example, would be, I think, devastated and outraged by what is happening to the nature and to the world that he loved. Um, Michael Frastini says, um, and by the way, it's worth noting the suffragettes were very unpopular in the time and, and did far more extreme forms of direct action than just stop oil. I mean, they um, people died actually as a result of some suffragette actions. I should notice that no, they used bombs, some of them, and um, they did. It's only went for art galleries, but also did far more extreme forms of vandalism. Most people actually look back at this. People going, "Oh, hate the suffragettes these days." That's for sure. That's true. Not that I'm encouraging, obviously, people to start using bombs. Just to be very clear there before I get arrested under the government's anti-terror legislation. Michael Fastini, I didn't care about the painting protests. Um, I don't think it's effective, but it's not a big deal. The dumping milk on a store floor was not helpful. So, can you explain about the what what was, what was he referring to there? This is, I think, Fortnum and Mason. Am I wrong? So, milk being put. What what happened there, and why? What's the defence, if you like? So that that was another group from from us. They're called Animal Rebellion, and they're asking for a fair transition to a plant based sort of food system. Um, obviously, because animal agriculture is also a leading another leading driver of climate change. Um, and again, it's that disruptive action. You can convince people all you want, but that kind of um, visceral seeing it, you know, it gets it gets the message out there. It gets the attention. Um, it also just starts to tap into this cognitive dissonance that we have as a as a society, where we're like, oh yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. We probably should be transitioning to a plant based um, economy uh, or a, a plant based food system. But we're still all carrying on our lives as usual. And that kind of any kind of disruption, like change is not going to come from us just all sitting there and wishing it to happen. Change is going to come through those kind of um, visceral kind of nonviolent, those completely peaceful uh, confrontations that we have, you know. And so, I mean, I support that kind of action as well, because I think, again, who is it damaging? It's literally crying over some spilt milk but it's really getting that message out there. It's getting that point out there. And it's showing that also that we're not gonna be obedient to a system that is literally killing us. The system that we have at the moment is literally killing us. Like it actually makes me quite emotional sometimes. I was talking to one of my friends who's involved in Just Stop Oil as well, and she's 20 years old. And she told me, she was like, Emma, you know when the world is gonna run out, run out of like drinking water, 2040? You can literally just look that up on Google, just type into Google, when is the world gonna run out of water? 2040, she said to me, and I'm not even gonna be 40, 40 years old. That is the situation that our young people are in right now. And to think that they should just sit back and just accept the world going on as usual, I think is just obscene. And I think really we should be supporting these young people in their protest, in their action, because the world is not gonna change unless we make it change. And that is why we're doing this action in the context of that, a bit of soup on some glass, a bit of milk on the floor, 
is just nothing. It's nothing. It offends our sensibilities, but our, our sensibilities need to be offended because we really let them down. Just finally, the government are talking now about doing basically a crackdown on these forms of protest. So you, were you worried about that in terms of, because obviously we already have the policing bill in this country, which essentially clamps down on protest, which is both peaceful and actually doesn't engage in property damage, for example. Not that this really does constitute property damage, by the way, because as I keep saying, no painting was damaged in the making of this protest. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you, do you, you know, is the issue there that actually, you know, the danger some might say is, well, this will basically provide a rationale for the government to clamp down on all forms of protests. And obviously that will make us less, even less of a democracy than you already are. What would you say to that kind of thing? Well, I think that we are putting the government in a difficult position um, because we are causing these disruptive protests. And the thing that all of the supporters have is that we're not afraid. We're not afraid of what they do to us. You know, there are people in the movement, over 50 people that have been put in prison. Um, Louis and Josh and others are still in prison awaiting trial. We're not afraid of that clamp down. And I think it's putting, it kind of shows that we're, we're putting pressure on them. And what I find really confusing is that obviously they could stop this disruption immediately by just doing the obvious thing and halting oil and gas, but they're showing that they would rather put peaceful protesters in prison than do the morally right thing. Um, so they can they can do what they wish to us. I mean, they're also clamping down on union activity. They'll clamp down on anything that they see as being effective for change because they want to keep us in our place. Mm -hmm. Emma, really appreciate you taking the time to come and explain the, the rationale behind the protests and you know it's very important that your voice is heard because as i've said at the moment what happens is you get obviously a mainstream media which will go not give any kind of real opportunity to explain you know to, in a reasonable way what the basis for it is and what this is really about and whatever people think about this particular tactic mm -hmm. um it's the fact you know i think if we were in in, in a generation to come living in a planet which has suffered the calamity of the things you're protesting against i think we'll look back at kind of who's more vindicated um the people who did something or anything to try and mm -hmm. stop that calamity and um, or the people who denounced the specific tactics to try and stop that that calamity from happening mm -hmm. um i just think you know how will we look back at things it's the don't look up phenomenon i suppose the film which looked at a asteroid or comet hit, heading towards the earth and how those trying to stop the calamity were ridiculed and mocked so I think it's very important that we do talk about this properly. And you've, you've very eloquently, whatever people think, um, there are people here. I mean, Falsam says, I don't think the problem is that we lack attention, it's that we lack power. While I respect the dedication, I don't see how these tactics build power. So some people might not agree with the tactics. Mm -hmm. um, and they might oppose it on other grounds as well. But um, um, I think everyone rational would agree what you're fighting against is the real horror. And we need to do far more to raise attention. So thank you for talking to us. And I think in the in with the question of power, I think I think a lot of us feel we don't have power, but that's part of this system of like individualism that we've been put into. Actually, collectively, we have a lot of power. You'd be amazingly surprised by how disruptive a few people can be. Imagine if that was thousands, you know. So I, I would say to you know, I leaflet on the street all the time, and if everyone that I leafleted that felt powerless and like nothing could change anything actually stood up and did something, we could do incredible things more than just throwing soup at a painting.
Brilliant stuff. Emma, really appreciate it. I hope you're doing well. And thank you so much for so lucidly putting forward your perspective. Thank you, Owen. Take care. Bye-bye. Great stuff. Really appreciated being having, for me, that was educational. I hadn't heard properly from Just Stop Oil in terms of their rationale. So I hope you felt as educated and informed um, as I did and challenged. It's important to be challenged as well. Um, finally, um, this is, I think, just something to, to, to cheer on. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about this. People, those of you who watched our documentary about Conservative <coughs> Pie Conference, what we did, we interviewed, obviously, anyone who'd speak to us. Um, and one of those uh, was a, a Conservative uh, councillor um, who basically said, well, let's just hear what he said in his own terms. This, I didn't know he was a Conservative councillor. I should make that clear at the time. But this is what he said. Millions of people are poor in this country. And yeah, but not starving. Not, I mean, three, million not, pe three million people are at risk of malnutrition in Britain. You don't believe that? I, I don't see it. I don't see it in my hometown. I don't see people dying on the streets. I don't see people on malnutrition. I just don't see it. Does that not suggest maybe you live in a bit of a bubble? No, I don't think so, because I live in Northumberland, which is the southeast of Northumberland is one of the most deprived parts of the country. And yes, they are. They have got some difficulties, but they're not. They're not starving. People are not starving on the streets. I've got rickets. Charities will say very like the people they work with. Parents skip hot meals to feed their kids. Do you not believe that? I find it hard to believe. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Well, anyway, this Tory councillor uh, is a county councillor who's been uh, now urged to resign over no hunger claim. Now, this Tory councillor is actually, if I, let me just double check exactly. He's basically, he's actually got a cabinet position. So he's not just, he's actually not some random guy. It's also a random councillor, if you like. Um, he he's in charge of his portfolio holder for healthy lives. So it's actually under his remit, that kind of thing. I think it's really important to talk about this because, and I'm glad, you know, he's he's now in the middle of a political storm. The media has covered this. Just so we're all aware, three million people are at risk of malnutrition or in malnutrition, at risk of malnutrition in this country. And as all charities will tell you, uh, that who, are, who look after people in struggling circumstances, parents skip hot meals in this country in order to feed, feed their kids. Now, the fact that this Tory councillor who is there to represent a local community, which includes people living in poverty, is, is refusing to accept that reality. And I suppose you have to ask yourself here, who do you trust more on this issue? A Conservative councillor or poverty charities who represent and champion families and communities that languish in poverty. I think I know who I'm going to trust on this one. And it just shows, again, the reality of, you know, Tories who support policies which drive people into poverty and both relative and absolute poverty are, of course, set to rise, not least as, as a result of the catastrophe that this government has imposed on this country, not least in the last few weeks, but also just over the last 12 years, um, that they're completely and utterly either indifferent or blind to the consequences of those policies. Um, they are in, in, you know, denialists when it comes to their poverty denialists. They refuse to accept the, the, the actual truth that this is a very wealthy nation in which millions of people struggle, um, often not just, you know, for comfortable existence, just the very basics. But that is clearly both immoral and unjustifiable in a country as wealthy as ours, which has wealth and resources, uh, all the wealth and resources in the world um, to deal with these problems. Um, so I think. 
I think this is such an important issue, and I'm glad there's actually some consequences. At least it's been talked about in the media. The BBC and others have covered uh, covered this as well. I actually, a journalist got in touch with me. I need to get back to them. A journalist got in touch with me to say that they thought that I'd pre-planned this, and I had been eavesdropping into um, online watching local council discussions, and that's why I'd singled this person out. That I'd obviously gone to a Tory conference to try and find him. I wish I could... Um, you know, extol my journalistic skills in that way, and 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 show well that this was this was all planned. Oh, what? It's just some random. I was just stopping any Tory delegate and speak to me. I didn't know who he was. But apparently, as a consequence, they're talking about this other councillor's talking about ending the broadcasts of local council meetings. <laughs> so ridiculous. Like, just to clarify, I didn't spy on your council meetings. I didn't pre-plan this. You should probably, just for public transparency issues, keep broadcasting your local council meetings, you weirdos. Anyway, it's um, it's just important to talk about because that's, you know, that's the nature of the Conservatives. That's the nature of, of, of the policies that they implement and the indifference or just denial about the consequences of that. Um, and that does mean in a wealthy nation such as ours, people suffering from malnutrition, and that is completely avoidable, but unfortunately that requires a change in government. Um, as David Bratty says, um, oh, he's talking about Steve Bray here. Steve Bray had a, Steve Bray kept, so he's talking about Steve Bray playing soft music versus his own Jones getting Tories politically hang themselves just by talking. I think your method is far more effective at hurting the Tories. Look, I didn't have an issue talking about with Steve Bray, he's not my bag. Um, he did for a while when I was doing my job, being interviewed around College Green where he'd camped out, start yelling at me about Brexit and the Russians. I remember at one point I was a bit like, I'm a journalist. You don't find after MPs, but it's a bit odd to try and drown out a journalist doing his job. But anyway, then we had a run in online because uh, back in 2019, I was mobbed repeatedly, but on one occasion by far-right activists, which I filmed on my phone. And then some um, ultra-Remainer centrist type online uh, criticised me and said, um, well, you know, you were helped and aided by people like by us when you were mobbed by far-right activists. And now, um, I, I, you know we wouldn't do the same, you know, I wouldn't come in and help you now. And um, this was some, I don't know who this was, it was some ultra-remainer centrist type um, on social media. It's like, I will no longer support you against far-right fanatics because you said something I disagreed with, whatever. Anyway, and I was like, well, I wasn't helped by anyone at the time. And then Steve Ray tweeted saying, yes, you were, you were, and like, I was there and it's all on camera. Anyway, as a result of this ridiculous um, spat, which I didn't provoke, which was about whether or not Steve Bray's army tried to help me uh, defend me from far-right fanatics, which they absolutely did not. And anyone can see the video of me being mobbed by far-right fanatics. Steve Bray developed a massive grudge against me. So at Tory, counts, uh, Tory conference, what he did is f he kept coming. Well, he did this twice at least. He, he marched up when we were interviewing Tory delegates, where we were challenging them about poverty and about the consequences of poverty, um, where he started blaring music out of his speakers in an effort to drown out my questions to stop the footage being usable. Then as soon as we finished the interview, walked off. I mean, it's just, it's pathetic. I'm sorry, that's just pathetic behaviour. Because <laughs> obviously I was trying to do my job as a journalist. Like, fine, have a grudge against me because I said that I wasn't helped by your people when I was mobbed by far-right fanatics, which I wasn't. 
you know, what bizarre, the whole thing. Now, I know some people think what Steve Bray does is tremendously effective. It's not my bag. Fine, whatever. Um, but I just think trying to hound left-wing journalists scrutinizing Tory delegates about child poverty and stop him doing his job because of a petty grudge you've developed on Twitter is, is, is I mean, what am I supposed to say? <laughs> I think I'm well within my rights to find that a bit annoying. Anyway, um, just finally... Um, yeah, your documentary made that your documentary. It was your documentary. You made it possible with your support on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84 and all the super chats that of course I got today. But if you want to support us on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84, so we can keep making these documentaries which are made on union wages. That's how we work. We don't just obviously express our principles, we live by our principles. Um, then whatever you can obviously afford given the cost of the crisis. Um, and we will we've got lots more to come. Um, lots more videos to come and lots more of these videos to come. Um, finally, Super Chats. Let me read through lots of Super Chats today, which is great, which support the channel. You're all brilliant. Thank you to Miriam. Uh, no, not Miriam. Oh, that's Miriam Margoyle. Yeah, well, thanks to Miriam Margoyle for what she did on radio. Thank you to, as ever, David Barata, uh, to Peter O'Donovan, Tad Campwell, again, often um, speaking, Rachel Reese, who says at least we can't? They can't use the trans community as a scapegoat this time. It's all her. It's about Ms. Truss, who has obviously gone on on trans issues in the past. Uh, Costas, who wants Labour to acknowledge that Brexit is a disaster. I mean, it's certainly true that the Conservatives' hard Brexit is causing terrible damage to the economy, which I think people just think it's all been kind of thrown in amongst the pandemic fallout and all the rest of it. But it, it does need to be acknowledged that that is a big part of it. Space Channel 5, Sudan STR, Michael Faustini, Vijay Baskar, Space Channel 5, Ricky Leach, Mr. Joe, Sudan STR, Lyrian, Folsom, and TPN Thorfansto. I'm not sure I've got that right. I did my best. Um, sorry, we didn't have a moderator today. We normally do. You can see what happens when we don't have a moderator. <laughs> God. Um, um, yeah, sorry about that. We normally do, but... <laughs> Just couldn't do that today for various reasons. Um, thank you, everyone, as ever. Do press like. Press like. Go on, just press like now. Watch, you know. It doesn't take anything out of your day to do that. Helps the algorithm. More people watches it. Watches it. Watch whatever. Um, do subscribe as well. If you're not subscribed, what are you doing? Subscribe. We've got loads of great videos. Come on. Um, and um, also, you can listen to us on the podcast. Okay. I think that's enough from me. Um, brilliant guest today. Thank you to Emma Brown from Just Stop Oil. Thank you to James Meadway and George Eaton for their brilliant political commentary. Um, we will have lots of coverage of the Tory implosion. So presumably that'll be most of our shows for the next two years. <laughs> it's going to be a long two years. And I do hope as well, we'll be covering, of course, the movements that will be like enough is enough and all the rest, which are springing up to um, challenge things. I'm going to leave you with Noam Chomsky urging you to support the channel. And I will see you all um in the week and also next week as well take care everyone lots of love please support this channel for independent thought discussion of the most important issues that we face thank you for listening everyone i hope you found that educational, interesting, engaging, and all sorts of other things. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjones84. You keep doing the podcast and the channel uh, with our incredible team's work, or use the support function in the description. And do subscribe and leave us a review, please. Some stars, any of those things. Um, but otherwise, lots of love. Hope you well. Speak to you soon. 
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.